Prognosis Ohio is brought to you by, well, you, because we don't do advertising on this show. Instead, we depend on the support and the kindness of listeners. If you like this episode, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 per month. To do that, go to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. Welcome back. On today's show, I talk with Senator Tina Maharath, who makes her second Prognosis Ohio appearance. Listeners may remember that we had the senator on in 2019 to talk about, among other things, disparities in health outcomes for immigrants in Central Ohio. Since then, the senator's been at the center of a harrowing experience with COVID-19. She's had COVID-19 twice herself, which is something we talk about in depth, since it's not something that many people seem to know a lot about. But her family has also been devastated by the disease, with multiple deaths and many persistent illnesses. Luckily, as the senator tells us, her family's doing well at the moment, but she continues to insist that we do better, around the state, but also specifically in the state house. The senator's displayed some real leadership on this issue, not only by talking about it publicly, but by doing what she can to use this experience to do what legislators are sent to the state house to do. That's make policy. It's always nice to talk to the senator, and I hope you benefit from the conversation as much as I did. Okay, now let's turn to Ohio State Senator Tina Maharath. Senator, thanks so much for joining us on the show and being here again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So it's been quite a journey since we last talked. Uh, you know, I, I was just talking with you before we started recording. I actually got to see you in real life in the WCB studios last time we did this. It feels like uh, a generation ago almost. So uh, we'll make do with this, but hopefully we can get back into physical space at some point. You know, I, I want to start off uh, by just, you know, you had several family members die from COVID, uh, COVID-related conditions. You yourself had it twice. You've noted in the media that dozens of your family members have had it. Uh, before we jump into policy, I, I just really want to ask you how you're doing, how's your family doing, and where are you uh, in, in the wake of this horrendous 2020? Yes, uh, so far we are walking into 2021 with no one in the family who has been um, tested positive for COVID. So I'm very fortunate for that. Um, most of us are, of course, um, just trying to rebuild our immune systems. We're trying to, of course, rebuild our mental stability because it does take a toll on your mental health after you've not only recovered from COVID, but also in the process of trying to wait for everything to go on the world and try to have the economy recover. And uh, just in general, we're just waiting in line for our vaccines. I guess just to kind of get into the conversation, I'm, I'm curious, when you think back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, um, and you were, you know, a senator, I forget exactly how long you'd been in office, but, you know, you'd presumably gotten down to a rhythm with, with, with the work, but then you had this major disruption. I guess I'm just wondering, how is your position, how, how have you thought about your, your job differently? How, how has the pandemic forced you to rethink even the idea of what it means to be a legislator here in Ohio? Absolutely. That is a very great question because it's a question I actually think often. Um, as a legislator during a pandemic, I don't feel as connected to the constituents as much as I used to. Uh, it's The social interaction is something that I didn't realize that I really needed to play a part of my role. 
So the pandemic with us practicing distancing, um, staying at home as much as we possibly can, I feel so disconnected to the constituency versus pre-COVID where I did a lot of handshaking, I did a lot of meet and greets, uh, ribbon cuttings, the whole nine yards, but my social interaction has essentially been diminished to slim to none because it's just not safe to anymore. Um, it doesn't prevent yeah. me from being able to legislate, but it does most certainly prevent me from being able to connect to constituencies to see exactly what are the needs of the district, what are the wants of the district. It, it feels like I'm legislating for the state of Ohio, but not necessarily pertaining specifically to the district. It, it feels like I'm fighting for my caucus rather than fighting for my district. Yeah. And you didn't, you weren't up for re-election in 2020 when we had, you know, I, I talked to several candidates who were talking, and some of them were first-time candidates. What does it mean to run for office when you can't shake hands and you can't go out and meet people? And I felt, you know, really bad for those folks. They wanted to connect so desperately, but couldn't. And, you know, they were also, these folks that I'm thinking about, you know, taking social distancing, they were taking the virus very seriously and in a way, that put them at a disadvantage because their opponents weren't necessarily taking it as seriously. Right, exactly. And it's just unfortunate because me being a first-time candidate myself back in 2018, that is how I won those votes is from the social interaction that I didn't realize it played a significant key role of winning an election. So, you know, you've talked um, a good deal about your experience with COVID in, in the media, and I wanted just to, to take a second to, to stop and pause on that. Y- you were quoted as saying, you know, it, it hurts so bad. I would sit in a corner, crawled up in a ball. I couldn't even touch my son, hug my son. Unfortunately, he contracted it as well. It was just an overall mess. And then you added, of course, you know, you don't wish it on anybody. We'll, we'll link to some of those, those accounts of, of your experience with it, but I wonder if you could I wonder if there's anything you want to share with listeners that you think maybe they just don't still know about COVID that you learned firsthand from your experience. Absolutely. So I did learn firsthand from COVID that the the social distancing is everything is key to not being able to spread it so fast. Um, So uh, for my personal experience uh, with my son, yes. uh, So when we both had COVID initially, it was just me. However, due to the social interaction that an eight-year-old needs, because he was eight years old at the time. So due to the needs of a social interaction a child needs, he wanted to hug his mommy. He wanted to touch his mommy. He wanted to be close to his mommy. But he doesn't have that full knowledge of uh, how important safe social distancing is. So it, it, it plays a key role of not spreading COVID. But it's just when it comes down to small children, it's just so hard to try to teach them these layperson terms because us adults, we understand how important it is to wash your hands, practicing social distancing, especially during a pandemic, but to teach kids, it's like trying to be Bill Nye the science guy. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, at the same time, though, you know, not to make light of it, but, you know, we've also had you know, a lot of examples of adults who just don't seem to get it. I mean, some of those adults appear to be your colleagues in the state house too, you know, who don't, for example, value masks or who are trying to make a political statement by 
not wearing masks or social distancing. And we don't even know what they're doing with regard to hand washing. I don't even want to know. <laughs> but uh, you know, in, in some ways, I've seen that kids are actually, they understand it a little bit better. And they're also, they tend to be better rule followers. Kids aren't making statements of, you know. Um, political statements true, <laughs> by, by refusing to follow public health rules. So, you know, I, I guess I just, for what it's worth, I'm reflecting on how, you know, kids and adults and also what we expect from leaders, elected representatives to show us the way and to demonstrate best practices. Completely agreed. So when it comes down to us adults, though, uh, I just, that, that is something I have learned that some people don't see the science behind masks. Um, they, they see the science behind hand washing, yes, because they understand it kills germs. And of course, practicing say social distancing, the farther you stay away from each other, the farther the virus will come spread to you. But I don't think people realize the significance of masks as well, that the virus can spread in the air. This is airborne. So that's why there's masks there. Let's say coincidentally that you are around the virus within an airborne circumstance. You're going to need a mask to protect yourself. Um, I know there's a lot of arguments to where, okay, well, uh, if one person wears a mask and the other person doesn't, it doesn't make a difference, whatever their argument is, but it does make a huge difference because that's just one less way to spread the virus into your body. Once it reaches your body, it's internally, it's there, and we have to wait out to see what happens with it. But uh, it's just a lot of argument with masks because of the personal liberty I understand personal liberty. I understand how frustrating it can be to wear what they like to quote unquote call muzzle, but it's also more important to save lives as well and protect yourselves and others. Yeah, and, and anybody who's ever been to the state house, and there are you know some older buildings in Ohio, the ventilation systems there are pretty terrible. You know, like when you think about airplanes and hospitals, like these these kinds of spaces that we're in sometimes that have you know certain kinds of filtration devices. The the you know the, these older buildings also aren't doing very much by way of protecting us, so it becomes particularly important to um, to to adhere to these kinds of policies in those spaces. Completely agree. So so you are you know, one of the more high profile instances here in Ohio of this you know. COVID reinfection. You've had COVID twice. Um, at least that's my understanding. Do you think that people understand this? And and how do you think about this? I mean, because I think a lot of people, you know, uh, I've even heard people saying, well, I've had it. So now I can, you know, relax on this or that. How do you think about that? And how, how do you want people to understand your reinfection of COVID within the context of how we tend to think about, you know, oh, I've had it, so I'm immune? Absolutely. That is a question that I had gotten asked frequently. I thought you couldn't get it a second time. I thought you couldn't get it um, during a certain period of time. But CDC has verified that you could possibly get it within a 90 day period. There's no quote unquote immune period. So uh, well, even regardless of the quote unquote immune period, I got it within the 90 day window range. So probably around either borderline ending or near the end, but regardless of exactly approximately how many days, I didn't know exactly when the approximate days was because I didn't know when exactly the virus came within my body. So I wanted to kill the myth that there's an immune system and you, or excuse me, there's immunity to the second infection because you've had it already. Because I 
been indeed in fact have it already. There was, of course, no antibodies within my system that probably played like the, the role of a vaccination to where, although I've already had COVID, um, the, the antibodies within my body prevented me from dying from a second time around. It was as if they played a shield within my body to ensure that my second go around wasn't as significantly severe compared to the first time around. So, um, it's, so have you been vaccinated or do you plan to get vaccinated? I absolutely do plan to get vaccinated. It's just um, I am in the very bottom of the list because of being 30 years old <laughs> and um, not being uh, a, 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 a what we like to define as, as an essential worker. Um, however, uh, that's not my, the least of my worries because I would rather have our elderly and our most vulnerable citizens vaccinated first before I reach the list since I've already had it twice now. Yeah, well, you know, whether you're deemed essential or not, you've you've already noted. I mean, you can you can continue to do your work as a legislature as a legislator virtually. It's the um, the retail politics part that you can't, but that's going to have to wait for a little bit, I guess. Absolutely, and I'm willing so, to go ahead and take my weight on the list. Meanwhile, while we wait for the most vulnerable citizens to get vaccinated. So you're you're also a member of the Asian American community here in Ohio, and you've talked a lot about that. And you know, the first uh, woman to be uh, Asian American in the in the state legislature or in the state senate, rather. Um, in that community, other communities of color, we all you know, hopefully, all know by now, have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, and I'm thinking about this reinfection discussion, but I'm also thinking about those disparities. How to what do you do you attribute the disparities um, based on, you know, you, you know whether Asian American or Black or Latinx and others? I mean, when you think about the vulnerabilities that lead to those kinds of numbers, what do you think is driving it? I think the driving the disparities when their numbers is the access to healthcare for basically anyone non-white. So this is something that's been historically an issue. And now that there's a pandemic, it's very transparent that it is indeed continues to be an issue. Even with the vaccinations itself, when it comes down to getting an essential workers vaccine, although African-Americans tend to take uh, the more larger numbers in terms of being a healthcare worker, the white um, individuals who work in the healthcare field or tend to get vaccinated at a faster rate than the African-Americans do. And I think it just has to do with Accessibility. Um, we just historically never had access to healthcare. So now that these notifications are coming out for the, the vaccinations, the notifications are probably going to come out faster to a Caucasian individual versus someone who is not Caucasian because they have access to those online records and access to those portals, et cetera, whatever the case may be, versus someone who's non-white who historically or just generally don't have those the access to those portals as much as they would like to because we tend to go somewhere else for our health care versus going to the mainstream hospitals. So, you know, I know that you've been supportive of the effort to declare racism a public health crisis in Ohio. We've talked on this show with Representative Sykes, Representative Boggs, Russo, um, and, and others. Uh, and, and I guess I, I just wanted you to connect the dots for us and your thinking a little bit. And we're going to come back to the vaccine issue through this, I think. How, how should this acknowledgement of the role that racism plays in health and health outcomes, how should that extend to our public health outreach right now? And you know, I'm, I'm wondering like, what the messaging should look like. What, what kind of messaging do you use as an elected official when your constituents in the third district 
come to you and say, I don't know, I don't know about this vaccine or I don't know about, you know, this therapeutic? Yeah, so when it comes down to the topic of racism is a public health crisis, the way I always try to frame it is the cultural competency portion of this. So for traditional non-white individuals, they don't understand the significance of preventative care, right? So when it comes down to getting sick, we just stay sick and just suck it up at home, do whatever home remedies we need to, versus going to the doctor, seeing if there's something more um, significant that we should be concerned about, etc. We don't get those annual exams. We don't tend to do anything above and beyond outside of what we're needed to do because we've never historically had the access to it and the access that we do have or in a very disproportionalized community versus um, having the easier access being in, let's say, um, Canal Winchester. I don't have easy access mm-hmm. compared to everybody else because of insurance coverage, whatever the case may be. So the way I always try to frame it is without us doing something as simple as going to the doctors, but again, because we don't have the easy access to the doctors, we put ourselves at a more higher risk than others to have these health conditions, especially when it comes down to not being Caucasian. There's different metrics that we have to be culturally competent about of why it's important for us to go see a doctor. For example, as Asian Americans, uh, we really need to be seeing a, a doctor or getting a BMI check for diabetes at 23 BMI because of all the rice that we tend to consume. We're at a higher risk for diabetes versus everybody else, regardless if we are within the BMI range or not. But those are some of the things that we individuals don't always know because they're not either Asian American or they didn't do a training in the medical field to know all those informations or they're not up to date with everything. So that's how you want to frame racism as a public health crisis. We're dying at a higher rate compared to a Caucasian individual because we have different needs compared to a Caucasian. And when it comes down to medical science, they tend to cater around a Caucasian man. Even the women are dying at a higher rate than a man because the science out there is meant to save a white man's life versus a woman. The only thing that, in my view, would make this even more tragic is if we then have disparities in getting the vaccine from communities of color, right? Like, these are the communities that are the most vulnerable or some of the most vulnerable and also where, uh, you know, the most work needs to be done to to combat misinformation, but also to do education and outreach to build trust. So, I guess, what's your pitch to you know your constituents, um, but also specifically to communities of color, to to Ohioans of color, who might be hesitant for various reasons. You come with a particular authority on this issue, not only because of your experience, but because of your own life background. So, what you know, h- how do you talk about this issue? But also, what can the state do? And this is where I kind of want to turn to the policy. Like, what would you like to see your colleagues in the legislature, the governor, the public, you know, the health, Department of Health, be actively engaged in doing? Absolutely. So, I absolutely think that we do need to require cultural competency courses for anyone in the medical field, um, whether that be nurses, whether that be doctors, or even eye doctors. There's just certain things out there 
that is something that's going to be known or something that's going to be detrimental for someone who is not a Caucasian man. There's even problems within us women, too, that doesn't pertain to a man. And specifically with people of color, we're more put at risk for heart disease, diabetes, you name it, because of the color of our skin solely because we just have different genetics. The, the genetics behind or the science behind the genetics right now is cater to a Caucasian man. So it's very important for us to spread that education. But we can't spread that education if our own medical providers don't even have that basic knowledge themselves. So I think it's very important for us to work on passing some cultural competency courses for the medical providers so that way we can start at step one and then move to step two, which is going to be a more public awareness message about these type of situations. Yeah, well, I mean, as you may know, and as listeners know, you know, I, so I, I'm a medical educator, a non-clinician, you know, and we do do a lot of cultural competency, I will say, at, at my college, maybe not enough, not in, maybe not in the right way, we can debate that, right? But in a way, we also have a generational shift where, um, you know, the, the, the future generation coming up has to be better prepared for that than the past generations have. But that's going to take just a little bit of time. I mean, is there anything that can happen on the policy side to encourage that? Um, I, I wonder if you if you have any thoughts of it, because, you know, I've, we've talked about cultural competency. I, I think you and I have talked about that issue a few times in the past. But I wonder what the levers are. I wonder how we get there. Yeah, so not everybody's colleges do have that education. So with this cultural competency bill that I have placed in or have introduced in this General Assembly, it does require that cultural competency courses be taken or if you didn't do cultural competency courses like Nymphakai's or excuse me, codifies the fact that you do have some sort of cultural competency training, whether that be like in-person training or excuse me, not in-person training, but like an in-person experience or just something like it's more it's put it's more in depth when it comes down to the bill that's introduced. So I don't have the bill in front of me at hand right now. But just in general, we need to know that there's check marks marked out there to know that there is indeed a culture competency training done some way, somehow, in order for you to get your medical license. Uh, because that is another thing. Not all of the higher education systems are also in sync in line with culture competency as well. It's really important also that we talk about the quality of that, right? I mean, I, I can imagine some institutions, I'm not naming names, you know, checking the boxes and, and trying to get done with that compliance item. But there's a big difference between checking a box and really training culturally competent clinicians. Absolutely. Really wanting to do it. Agreed. Absolutely. So it's just we we need to know that there's something being done. There's something that has been done for you to understand that there is some disparities among different communities in order for you to get your medical license or uh, whatever the case may be. Because for this bill and this General Assembly, it does expand a little more larger outside of the scope of um, doctors and nurses. I've also included dentists and um, eye doctors in this piece of legislation. So I know that, you know, you are working from a home as much as possible right now. And, and we've, you know, those who've read in the papers over the last year or so know that, you know, as we've talked about mass compliance and things like that in the state house have left uh, folks like you pretty vulnerable, 
right? And so what does that look like going forward? Uh, is there a conversation with your colleagues? I mean, you, you all have a budget to start uh, to, to you know, finalize in the next couple of months. Um, there are really important things that have to be done at the Statehouse. Perhaps most of it or all of it can be done virtually. But is there any conversation? Is there any movement to you know, make the Statehouse a safer place for legislators to be? Is there a shift um, with regard to public health compliance that you've seen? And I, I guess I just want to know, like, what's driving this resistance? I mean, do you, do you feel like we've gained anything over the last year that some people have seen that, okay, I need to start taking this more seriously? No, not at all, unfortunately. Um, so there have been discussions of how we can make um, working in this General Assembly a more safer environment or, or more efficient environment. But there's still no math mandate. The discussion has been brought to the table several times in both chambers. But our discussions have been shot down and they insist that we are in a safe environment. But uh, as you've already noted, that the state house does not have the best ventilation system in that building. So it's a very, very highly concerned discussion that we continue to still have. But still, no movement. Um, we... Over in the Senate chambers, at least, I'm not quite sure over the House since I haven't been to the House uh, chambers since the beginning of the pandemic. But over in the Senate chambers, at least, we do try to practice safe social distancing by keeping us colleagues six feet apart. It's same thing in the committees. And it, uh, the Senate president has even taken a step further and just completely taken out the extra chairs that one used to have previously flipped around. That way they can sit within six feet apart from other people. So there will no longer be standing room committees, even though we've already had an overflow room um, in one of our committee hearings. But some people are still breaking the rules. Um, We're going to try to do a better job at making more known of how significant it is to practice social distancing and wearing a mask. But technically, there's no mask mandate. So the state house, and it's very concerning. And it's really incredible, too. I mean, there are mask mandates around the state. Right. In, in other spaces. And, you know, it, just in terms of the hypocrisy from that, you know, the average voter, you hope the average voter or the average constituent expects from their legislature. I can't go into a store without a mask, um, but you all are allowed to be in the state house without masks. It just seems really hypocritical. I mean, is that kind of how you think of it, too, that there's this this double standard going on? Absolutely. And the loophole around that is because of the fact that these executive orders for mask mandates excludes the General Assembly and excludes the state house. So everybody in the state must have a mask mandate, but us at the state house. And I think that it's a very, very large loophole because the state house should be the people's house. So we're providing people to come here and start a super spreader of COVID-19. Yeah. Final question. You're, you're the ranking member on the Financial Institutions and Technology Committee. And I'm just curious, you know, when you think about that, there's been a lot of conversation about infrastructure, about telemedicine and, you know, the, the need for rural America, uh, rural Ohioans to have better access to the Internet, things like that. But I'm curious, generally, what role could that committee play in terms of counteracting COVID misinformation? Um, you know, the lack of information as well as misinformation and kind of how, how do you think about what that committee could do if mobilized uh, in, let's say, a bipartisan way to solve some problems? What are one or two problems you'd love to see solved? Some problems I'd like to see solved um, and to mobilize in a bipartisan manner is to 
give more access to broadband. Um, it's not always easily accessible to all Ohioans. So if we expand our broadband access, I think it will solve problem number two, which is the misinformation that could constantly get spreaded. So we have more access to broadband throughout the whole state. Not only will everyone benefit because children will be able to, um, actually children and adults. So families will be able to work virtually, uh, whether that be schoolwork or whether that be um, regular work, but with more access to broadband, that means there will be more accurate information easily available versus the misinformation that they tend to get by word of mouth or whatever the case may be. So I hope to see that type of work uh, get spread out through the committee during my time during on that committee as ranking member. But it's it's still easy, or excuse me, it's still an early process. So we'll have to see how far we go. But I know from both chambers that we do tend to, or we do have a plan to try to prioritize broadband. So we'll see how far that goes this General Assembly, but I hope to see it um, get passed out soon. Yeah, well, that would be a real enduring benefit to the state, way even far beyond the pandemic and, and, and health care, right? It would, this would enable, you know, what we've seen with the schools um, and, and kids where we have disparities in access to internet. And that would be one of those things. It's almost like fixing the water systems or fixing the electric grid or something. It's that important. Um, Senator, I'd like to thank you for taking some time to, to talk with us on the show and we wish you, um, you know, continued good health and just, um, you know, good luck fighting these particular fights in the in the interest of improving the health of our state. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. My many thanks to Senator Maharath for coming on the pod again. We're including a bunch of links in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com so you can learn more about the senator's work. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me and Mark France. Claire McGee provided editorial and production assistance. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at prognosisohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. As I mentioned, we welcome ideas for important issues you'd like to hear us engage with on the show. We've received some great suggestions from listeners that have already materialized into new episodes. Stay tuned for our next episode, dropping in about two weeks on equity and race and health and healthcare here in Ohio. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks, everybody. Be safe and be well.